Welcome back to the Ronnie's Awesome List podcast. I'm Ronnie. A diagnosis of breast cancer comes with many challenges about treatment, follow-up care, side effects. It's all so daunting, and coping with the emotional and psychological stresses just adds to the difficulty for anyone faced with a cancer diagnosis. My guest today is breast cancer surgeon Dr. Leah Kelly from the Prima Medical Group in Greenbrae, California. Many women have leaned on Dr. Kelly during the most difficult times in their lives. And since October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, I'm grateful to have the chance to speak to Dr. Kelly about the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of breast cancer. Thank you, Dr. Kelly, for joining me. Thank you. So I want to start with prevention. What lifestyle changes can we do today to reduce our risk of breast cancer? Well, there are several important lifestyle interventions that can make a significant difference in lifetime breast cancer risk. Probably the most statistically important of those is moderate cardiovascular exercise. So we encourage everyone to get at least three hours of moderate cardiovascular exercise a week. Um, And there is good data to show us that that can reduce both primary occurrence rates for breast cancer as well as recurrence rates in survivors. What kind of exercises would you recommend that people do now? So in order to demonstrate the benefit, people need to be exercising with a moderately elevated heart rate. Although we do encourage people to do things like gentle yoga and Pilates where their heart rate is more normal, the benefit is only accrued from elevated heart rate exercise like hiking, swimming, cycling, and so on. In order to get the benefit, people need to have an elevated heart rate for a sustained period, at least 30 minutes at a time, and your heart rate needs to be at 60% of your maximal. Maximal heart rate is 220 minus your age. So how does diet and exercise actually factor into breast cancer prevention? So both of them are shown to have a population-based effect on breast cancer risk. And we know that women who have a diet that is low in saturated fat and low in processed sugars are at lower risk for many cancers, including breast cancer. And that the kind of exercise that we were just talking about decreases lifetime breast cancer risk by up to 30% if it's consistent. So these can make a significant impact on a person's risk for a primary breast cancer. I want to talk about breast cancer risk assessment and management, including surveillance, chemo prevention, and surgical intervention. So someone like Angelina Jolie, for instance, had a double mastectomy of healthy breasts um, because she tested high for the BRCA1 gene mutation. How much does a decision like that lower her cancer risk? And can you briefly explain what the BRCA1 gene mutation is? Most breast cancers are what we think of as sort of sporadic events in the sense that they're not linked to an underlying genetic predisposition to cancer. A smaller proportion, in this country it's probably about 10 to 15 percent of cancers, are associated with an inherited underlying predisposition to breast cancer. The most well-known of those is uh, BRCA mutations. So someone like Ms. Jolie actually has 
up to an 80% lifetime risk of breast cancer, which is markedly higher than anyone in the normal population without such a predisposition. For those patients, the decision for risk-producing surgery is a pretty logical one. For most women who don't have a genetic predisposition, risk-producing surgery is not really part of our approach to risk management. That's a pretty specific population. Risk-reducing mastectomies will reduce a woman's risk of breast cancer about 95%. For somebody like Ms. Jolie, whose risk was about 65 to 80% in her lifetime, we can cut that risk down to low single digits. That's a really big amount of risk reduction, but it, it's, a, it's a relative benefit. So an average woman's lifetime risk of breast cancer is more like 10 to 12%. The idea of doing risk-reducing surgery for that makes no sense because the amount of benefit is so much smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, so talking about surveillance, um, a myth I often hear is that women are getting too many mammograms, exposing them to radiation. Um, how true is that? Radiation exposure from mammograms is not considered to be part of the potential harms of mammography. The amount of exposure that you get from a screening mammogram is less than you get from getting in a plane and flying to New York. It's very, very, very low level of radiation, similar to our environmental exposures. So there's a lot of concern about that, but that's not the issue with mammography. The issues with mammography have to do with the balance of false positives and false negatives. All studies have some potential for both, right? False negatives are situations where someone has a breast cancer that we can't see on mammogram, and false negatives are situations where someone is healthy, but their imaging looks abnormal, and they end up with a workup and a biopsy and follow-up that, for something that isn't cancer. Both of those things are going to happen with any test. And the argument about the frequency, uh, onset, and stopping of mammography at what ages really has to do with the argument of the balance of the benefit of mammography versus the downside, which are the false negatives and the false positives. There's no question that mammography decreases the mortality rate from breast cancer. There's no question. Nobody argues about that. Mammography saves lives. We know that. But mammography also has costs, and those costs are not just financial costs. They're costs to women, to families, anxiety, time, complications of biopsies, and so on. And so the argument is about what's the right balance between the benefits of mammography and its downsides. The fewer mammograms you do, the fewer false positives you have. So when should um, a woman start getting a mammogram and checked for breast cancer? Well, a lot of that depends on what that woman's individual risk is. So the answer is different for a woman whose breast cancer risk is low or average versus someone whose breast cancer risk is elevated. Factors to consider in that decision include family history, if a woman has a family history of breast cancer, what's the age at onset in the family? Uh, has she had genetic testing? Other factors to consider include things like reproductive situations. So women who have had their children relatively early in their lives and breastfed are protected against breast cancer. Women who have never had children or who had their children later in life or didn't breastfeed are less protected. Uh, women who are heavier or more sedentary are at higher risk. So 
a woman needs to look at her individual and family risk factors to make a decision about what her level of risk is. Anyone whose risk is anything other than low should start having mammograms at 40 and continue every year. Women at average or low risk can decide to delay the onset of mammography until age 50 or and or space their mammograms out to every two years. But there's a price to be paid for that in terms of the decreased efficacy of the screening. Does having a family history of breast cancer mean I will get breast cancer? Definitely not. So the statistics show us that the vast majority of women who get breast cancer have no family history, and the vast majority of women with a family history never get breast cancer. It's merely a, a risk factor, right, among others. And so it's an important feature of the assessment when we talk about risk. But, you know, as we all know, we're all individuals and our lives are going to play out according to a lot of factors, some of which we have control over and some of which we don't. Family history is only one of those. Do you ever see men with breast cancer? Sure. Yeah, I see a couple cases a year, typically. Regarding early detection, um, does breast cancer always form a lump or what other signs should people look out for? Sure. So in terms of physical findings, things that women notice that are different about the breast, a lump is by far the most common. But there are other subtle signs that can be important. Um, lumps in the armpit, uh, nipple discharge, changes in the appearance or texture of the breast, changes in the skin, nipple retraction, things like that. Can you break down the at-risk groups so we can get an idea of some of the factors affecting women? Sure. So risk factors really fall into uh, sort of three categories. There's familial risk, so the person's family history, which includes ethnicity. There are some ethnic groups that are at increased risk, even in the absence of family history, uh, most notably Ashkenazi Jewish women. So that's one category of risk. Uh, the second category is reproductive risk factors. So again, women who have their first child before 30 and breastfeed are the most protected. Women who have their first child after 30 or don't breastfeed get less protection. And women who never have children have the most reproductive risk. Also under the heading of reproductive risk factors is um, combined hormone replacement therapy after menopause which is a known and important risk factor for breast cancer. The third category of risk is personal risk factors. So things like activity level, weight, diet, uh, things like that. So what, what's the correlation between having a child under 30 and breastfeeding have to lowering your risks of getting breast cancer? The short answer to that is that when a woman goes through a full-term pregnancy, her breast tissue matures uh, on the cellular level in a way that doesn't happen otherwise. And you can apply the same thing to breastfeeding. So, when, you know, with a full-term pregnancy plus breastfeeding, there's a, a sort of final maturation process that the breast tissue goes through. The earlier in life that happens, the more reduced risk, particularly for breast cancer, a woman has. Now, reproductive decisions are very complicated ones, and I never ever would tell somebody to make decisions about having children or breastfeeding based on their breast cancer risk. 
it just that's just the fact of the matter that it affects the tissue in this way. You hear about cancer clusters, quote unquote. How does Marin County actually compare to the Bay Area, to California and the U.S. as far as breast cancer rates? And what is is this a myth, the cancer clusters, or is there some truth to that? No, cancer clusters are real things. Um, and there certainly was, I think what an epidemiologist would probably agree, was a cancer cluster in Marin County in the 90s and early 2000s, it's now no longer detectable. So current breast cancer rates as of the last five or so years in Marin County are comparable to other counties with similar demographics in other parts of the country. Did they ever figure out why there was a cancer cluster during that that time? Yeah, so the best data suggests that most of the additional risk that we detected was accounted for by several increased demographic risks. So I always tell people, that, you know, the risk in Marin County was never geographic. It wasn't about Marin. It was demographic. It was who lives here. And so it had to do with socioeconomic status, the very high uptake of combined hormonal placement therapy after menopause in this county, other factors like higher per capita alcohol consumption compared to similar counties, and so on. If you start doing the math and adding up those risk factors, that accounts for virtually all of the increased risk that we saw at that point. Since then, the rates have continued to come down, and that decrease is not entirely accounted for. And then the epidemiologists are, are looking at that question. But in terms of current risk, this county is not out of line with other similar counties in other parts of the country. So while conventional medicine does its work, how does your holistic approach to breast cancer help your patients? So I think it's very important to recognize that when you, you the, the, the idea of individualized medicine has has two pillars, right? There's, when we're talking about cancer, cancers come from ourselves. And so they are as different from each other as we are from each other. We are always working to tailor the conventional medical approach to the cancer that we're being confronted with. Equally, if not more important, is tailoring the approach to the individual in which the specific cancer is happening. And that includes really obvious stuff like age and other medical problems and social situation, but it also includes the incorporation of some of the lifestyle changes that we talked about, diet, activity level, all kinds of wellness approaches, stress management, and those things make a really big difference in terms of outcomes and recurrence risks, but they also really impact the individual experience of the cancer journey. And even for women with relatively low-risk disease, one of my goals as a provider is to help create opportunities for the person I'm, I'm with at that time to learn, to become empowered, to make positive change in her life, to gain and grow through a stressful and difficult experience. And thinking about how the cancer intersects with her in that sense is also really, really important. Great. Um, is there anything else that you want to add? Uh, I really feel fortunate to be a part of this amazing community. And, you know, Warren County has been really good to, to me and my, my colleagues. And 
Um, I'm really invested in keeping this community healthy. We've opened a beautiful new breast center over at Drake's Landing. And anyone who hasn't seen it, invited to come and see the beautiful setting and, and have a mammogram with us because we're here to keep you healthy. Uh, at Drake's Landing, so Summer in General facility, but it's at Drake's Landing. And this is our mammography and breast diagnostic imaging center. This is where people would come not only for their screening mammograms, but also for any diagnostic workup that they needed, biopsies, and so on. It's a separate location from our cancer center, which is on the hospital campus. A cancer diagnosis is always scary, but the good news is that survival rates today are higher than ever due to advances in diagnosis and treatment. I'm so grateful to Dr. Leah Kelly from the Prima Medical Group for taking the time to talk with me about prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of breast cancer. Thanks again for joining me, Dr. Kelly. Yeah, thank you.